Hi, I'm David Herskovitz, and you're listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Based in Vancouver, Canada, Burb strives to build on the city's legacy of cannabis tolerance and its gift to the world, BC Bud. Follow us on Instagram, at ShopBurb, and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture. Peter Davis is a prominent player in New York's fashion society and media worlds. From his days as a green-haired intern at Paper Magazine in the early 80s, to his current spot as editor-in-chief of the U.S. edition of L'Officiel magazine, he's established himself as the uptown, downtown guy. His mom was an editor at House and Garden, and his father's family started the Davis Cup. But Peter's heart belonged to the downtown nightlife scene. While still in high school, he snuck into clubs and began his foray into a world very different from his family's uptown routine of lunches and dinners. His experience with cannabis began in high school and went into overdrive at Bennington, a progressive liberal arts college in Vermont where students consumed cannabis whenever and wherever they desired, including classrooms. Now he's consulting for a new cannabis luxury brand called Guide that's targeting the same high-end consumer as Bebo and Dosis. As a fashion expert, He's seen how mainstream cannabis has become as recreation as well as culture. Designers like Alexander Wang and Prabal Gurung work it into their designs. And he thinks it's just a matter of time before fashion companies begin selling their own cannabis products. Chanel Sativa, anyone? Or how about Supreme CBD? The Keith Haring Foundation is going all in on the cannabis connection with a line of products catering to the canna consumer, including bongs and CBD dog biscuits. We talk about all things cannabis, his cover shoot with Sean White, his legendary Supreme collection, how growing up with Ivanka Trump led him to start a magazine for Jared Kushner, and why he thinks that Ivanka has her eyes on the presidency. Hey, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Light Culture. Today, our guest is Peter Davis, a fixture in New York's fashion and media world, and currently the editor-in-chief of the French fashion magazine, L'Officiel. Is that fair to call it a fashion magazine, or how do you think about it? Yeah, fashion, style, culture, um, travel, you know, lifestyle. Lifestyle. And so Peter is one of those rare creatures who was able to make the transition from uptown to downtown when the divide was as big as the Grand Canyon. You came from the distinguished Davis family of Tennis World's famous Davis Cup. Yep. So to me, this suggests a cocktail culture. Tell me about the world of high society as you grew up in it. What was that like? Well, as you said, you know, uptown and downtown, you know, people used to say you get a nosebleed if you go above 14th Street. And now the uh, borders kind of dissolved and blurred. But there was the uptown social scene and the downtown social scene. And as a kid, I would skateboard downtown and finally ended up interning at Paper Magazine, which changed everything for me because I only wanted to work at Paper because I read it and I thought it was the best magazine ever and 
I didn't know how to type. Paper really changed everything for me in media. And also in terms of my social world, I always wanted to get away from uptown and hang out downtown. And paper, you know, kicked that door wide open for me. Yeah. So what was it about up high society, as I like to call it now, like making the pun high, get it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I get it. What was that? Was that like a cocktail world where like people had their drinks at five o'clock and it was just, a, was it as the way I imagine it as it might be depicted in a TV show or some cliche version of that? Yeah, high society and the uptown scene really ramped up when my brother's ex-wife Tinsley was New York's number one socialite. There's a little crossover downtown, but it was really like an uptown scene and more cafe society. I forgot who coined that term than high society. But, you know, uptown, really, the world revolved around lunch and dinner at Mortimer's and dinner parties at home. And my parents were always having dinner parties with the same kind of cast of characters. Which were not just like anybody's, right? They were like the who's who of New York in a way, right? Yeah, I remember, um, like, who were the Nan Kempner? It was always nice to kids. You know, not all adults were cared about kids. She was always cool. I remember Peter Beard came to our house with Cheryl Teagues and Barbara Allen. There was some kind of crossover with the, the Warhol people who were, you know, decidedly downtown, but kind of like to slum it the other way around uptown. Growing up in New York, city we i kind of i say like you know went to school in nightclubs i like grew up in nightclubs so we would hang out at you know first it was like Aryan in the palladium and you know we were teenagers but i knew jennifer rubel who's steve rubel's niece and we always had like a access and we always were kind of you know get by the door quickly and then after it was nell's basically that's where we hung out nightclubs away from our parents. Sometimes you would run into people's parents there, though. This was when you were in high school, I guess, then, right? Yep, high school, college. and in College. But then you went to, like, as I remember, when we first met, uh, when you were in Bennington, and, and mm-hmm. you showed up at, at Kim, uh, my partner's, Kim Hustreiter's uh, loft, where we were having yep. Paper Magazine at the time. And, yes, I think you had green hair, right? Yeah. You were yeah. kind of all punked out. And going yeah. for, you know, Bennington, a very good progressive school. And I was so surprised to hear from you that in those days, at least, they would send you home or somewhere in the winter because they didn't have heat. So you would have to come yeah, they, and find work as an intern. <laughs> exactly. Is that true? Yeah, it's true. They called it um, field work term. They still have it. So you had a, a long fall term and a long spring term, but no winter term because they said they couldn't afford to heat the, the art. Being VAPA, visual arts, performing arts, they couldn't afford to eat the school. In Vermont, it gets, you know, pretty frigid. Yeah. So we had no school December, January, and February. So instead, I, I think one or two years worked at paper. Yeah. No, that's how I remember. That's your first time yep. that I met you, and you told that story, and I thought that was preposterous that this, like, <laughs> yeah. super expensive school could not yeah, that's what have, they said. afford heat. So, you know, yep. live and learn, right? But also, you Bennington is in Vermont. Vermont, we know, has a history of uh, a relationship with the plant. Yeah. Is that where you were first exposed to that? Uh, no, not at all. I think I was first exposed at age 13 in New York. I remember the first time I smoked weed, cannabis, um, I felt like it, quote-unquote, didn't work. Shortly worked thereafter. But, yeah, Bennington, you know, we... 
got the plant, if we got cannabis, it was always homegrown, so grown in Vermont. Bennington really had no rules, unlike a lot of other colleges. We didn't have grades. You could smoke wherever you wanted. People would smoke pot in the dining hall and classrooms. I knew that it wasn't a normal school because people from quote-unquote traditional schools would come visit me, and it was like they were on a different planet. They couldn't believe not what we got away with, but what we were allowed yeah, to do. Yeah, you didn't even like, they didn't even let you get away with it, right? And just made it yeah, so permissive. It was, it was just your teachers were in on it. I mean, it was a very, I mean, I think it still is liberal school. That's kind of what it was known yeah. for all along. And you had an interest in fashion at that time as well, or how would you describe that passion? A little bit more street style and culture, fashion. It wasn't until. I started to write my column for, for paper and for you guys that I was exposed to high fashion, even though my mother always wore like Saint Laurent. She was obsessed with, you know, she always had great fashion style, still does. But I didn't care about it until paper. I was into Supreme when it first opened, Union before that, Stussy, kind of, you know, nightlife style and street style, which is fashion that was the beginning of the whole streetwear scene, right? Yep. Yeah. But it was... We covered it. But let's say Supreme, because I know since uh, your obsession with Supreme is legendary. It's legendary. uh, At this point, you have one of the great collections, I hear, right? Yeah, I'm kind of... um, I'm lucky because, you know, I know James. I met James when he had Union, and then again at Stussy. James Jebbia, the owner of, of Supreme. James Jebbia, who's like the founder, and people who do know, he's kind of like the Wizard of Oz. No one really knows knows him, and I'm lucky to know him, and he's a pal of mine. So I don't ever go to the store or wait in line. I email the studio, you know, I want the water bottle and the T-shirt. I get the stuff more than I get the clothes now, and then they drop it off at my building. So every new release, not everything, you're not getting everything. No, I pay for it too. I mean, I don't get it for free. Sometimes he'll throw Christmas present here and there. But, you know, I just pay for it, but I don't have to wait line. And if it's sold out, I don't miss out on anything. So what are some of your prized uh, possessions in that category? Um, I like the accessories, as they call them, and I use them all. If there's a water bottle, I use it. They came out with, uh, it's in, it's $300, $200 bills, and then 100 singles encased in Lucite. And like a paperweight and when i ordered it i got the bill and i was like you know what the f is this bill so big for i don't want this paperweight and then i don't do it anymore i used to put all of my instagram stories the loot that i would get some of it being for my friend marjorie gubelman's son cyrus is like my godson oh you know not officially but basically i would get these t-shirts anyway all these that picture of me holding the lucite supreme money um went kind of viral on social media and I realized and someone told me that they only made a hundred of them and only sold them to friends and family. So I guess that's my grailed item, I would say, but I like the sled. I went sledding with my brother's wife's kids and I got them Supreme sleds. I like stuff you can use. And then I have a bunch of old t-shirts from back in the day, uh, that I guess now are very valuable, even with holes in them and, you know, falling apart. I could probably put a down payment on something with. <laughs> so where are these kept? Like, do you have hundreds of pieces? Would that be fair? Or 
Yeah, I have a um, like a guest room office, and I keep most of the stuff there, so my apartment doesn't look like a 12-year-old boy. So I try to keep it at the living room and the kitchen. And I really like, you know, they make coffee cups. I use them. They make glasses. I use them. I don't keep them, you know, in a box, like in a, you know, air-controlled oh, so- room like sneakerheads do. I actually open right. it and use all the stuff. What else are you collecting these days? I have weird collections. I collect things that scare me, so I collect anything that's like a shark motif or a gun motif. So I have a gun, actually, that Gaston, who's like a designer and architect, did. It's called a smoking gun, and it's wood, and it's a pipe. So you pull from <laughs> the handle, and you the bowl is at the the barrel. Nice, nice concept. Yeah, so speaking of that, of smoking, so, you know, the world has changed quite a bit since even uh, your days in Bennington because that's become the norm for many parts of this country. Uh, I know you're you're in California now, for example, there. So how does your life change when you go to California as opposed to New York with regard to smoking and things like that? Um, it's just much more open. I mean, MedMen and the dispensaries have really changed the game. Really, MedMen has made buying, whether it's edibles or flour or, you know, whatever you desire, so easy. It's like going into an Apple store. You know, they're all in red T-shirts. They look like they almost work in Apple, and they're super helpful. Like, oh, what do you want? And, you know, before you would get a bag of pot, and it's like, yeah, you hoped it was really, you know, sense or whatever, they said it was. Now it's like a science. I want this. I want that. I want an edible that's this many milligrams that tastes like this. And you can also, you know, at LAX, just like board a plane with it by accident. I had a dosis um, vaporizer pen. I think it said arouse on it or, you know, elevate something obviously not uh an e-cigarette, which I don't smoke. And they found it at the security at LAX. And she's like, what's this? And I was like, oh, an e-cigarette. She just like handed it back to me. Like they could care less. So that's nice. And it's funny. You see these red MedMen kind of airtight Ziploc bags. And they've become, you know, cooler than carrying a Chanel shopping bag. Every soccer <laughs> mom to a kid on a skateboard, everyone has them. So I usually like come from the airport at LAX and have the Uber stop at MedMen, do some shopping, get back in the Uber, and then go where I'm going. And do you, have you become a connoisseur as well of like trying all the various uh, varieties and yeah, strains? And definitely. I mean, like one thing I've discovered, which I never had before, was edibles. And I've learned how to navigate edibles. I always say that you got to be careful because you can like have one you know, square of chocolate. And if it was a meme, it'd be like, it's not working. It's not working. The next one would be call 911, you know, I'm like having a seizure. <laughs> yeah. um, so that's interesting. Cause when I was a kid, people would say, Oh, so-and-so made hash brownies. And it's like, who knew now it's breath mints and those like Listerine strips, but edible. So your favorite thing, lollipops, sweets. Yep, lollipops, everything, like um, Chex Mix. So I always get edibles when I'm there because there's so many brands and I kind of want to have, you know, soda that has cannabis infused, THC infused. And MedMen, they're so knowledgeable about exactly what's in there. Is it indica, yep. sativa, the 
milligrams. Yeah, it's good to know what you're getting. Have you explored the other uh, dispensaries as well? Because there's apparently like a wide range of them, and it's interesting to yep. imagine what those. Was... I went to a, I went to a bunch in Desert Hot Springs. I created um, a website for a cannabis brand that's going to launch called Guide which will compete with Dosist and Bebo and the kind of high-end cannabis. And they have a grow facility in Desert Hot Springs. So I went to a bunch of dispensaries around there, which felt a little bit more, um, I don't want to say headshot, but not as fancy as MedMen. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm interested in this guy. Tell me about it. What is that? What's the story behind that? They're a grow operation, um, and they've designed all the packaging to be a brand of flower, pre-rolls, vape pens. Um, it hasn't launched yet, you know, because they are also uh, a grow operation and a wholesaler. Um, they, you know, it's all grown there. So it was amazing to visit the grow operation because it's not Cheech and Chong or like, you know, <laughs> sitting in a room. Oh, too bad. Yeah. You feel like you're, yeah, I know exactly. You feel like you're in a, you know, a laboratory, like you should have a white lab coat on. Yeah. football fields and how they're growing it. Right, because you can't even go into some of those rooms without the mask because the aroma is so strong. Exactly. Um, and so I built out a website for them and content. And, you know, their tagline is, let us be your guide. And in terms of the experience, and I reached out to quote unquote influencers on Instagram and no one balked at participating, which shows how mainstream cannabis really is as a recreational thing, you know, as a culture. Yeah. Before, you know, no one would ever say they smoke pot or have any, you know, it was like you're being risky to even talk about it now. No one even cares. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Let's talk about that a little bit, like in the fashion world, because I know you're, you're there, obviously work with photographers, models, go to fashion shows. What's the connection there in, in that world with cannabis? Do you see it everywhere or how... What is, how do people feel about it in, in those situations? Yeah, I definitely, I mean, you see it, not only you see it everywhere, but everyone's just much more open about it. Um, you know, it's funny, my mom was saying, oh, I remember like smoking a joint and I don't know, some Caribbean island after a shoot with a photographer. And it seems so renegade, but now everyone smokes pot after a shoot. Like it's not, you know, like, oh, let's sneak, you know, behind the pool, you know, after a party and smoke pot. It's, just open. It's amazing how many people have vape pens. And also, you know, it was kind of outlaw and a little bit rebellious and badass to have a pot leaf on a t-shirt or a hat. And it had a moment, you know, when I was young where it was super thing. And now it's kind of high fashion. The amount of designers from Alexander Wang to Prabhu Gurung that have done put cannabis leaves as a pattern, jewelry makers, you know, it's kind of like everyone is not only out about it, but they're spending money to show that they're into it. Yeah. Do you, does that, do you think that's an endorsement of it from them as, as part of like, well, we do this as well. Yeah. It's all good. Yeah, I think so. And I think that they know it's popular. You know, people want it. You don't have to go to canal street to buy like a gold, you know, pot leaf to put on a chain, the way you used to now it's, you know, high end jewelry. I forget people like Jennifer Fisher are using it in a very high end way and 
definitely an endorsement. And, you know, they're also catering to a really big market that wants to wear it. Yeah, flaunt like it. the style. Yeah, exactly. It used to be like Lucy Plot Finet, French designer. I remember I bought a, I still have it, a sweater, it's holes in it. Um, like a cashmere sweater, it's green, and it has a cannabis leaf on the back leaf on the back and that was like i don't know when colette first started so 20 years ago 25 years ago and now there are a million companies that do what he did which then was like oh wow when i wore this oh my god where'd you get that wow that's crazy no it's not crazy at all yeah would you ever do a story in la fichia like cannabis and fashion or have you done it already yeah no i'm actually doing um you should talk to this guy. A buddy of mine wrote a book called uh, Billion Dollar Dime Bag about the cannabis industry. Just came out a month ago. His name is Jackson Trilly. And I met him in LA and I did an excerpt of his book. And then next to it, I'm doing a cannabis gift guide. The Keith Herring Foundation is releasing all these really beautiful glass pipes, pieces, and water pipes, bongs. Oh, yeah, that the Keith Haring Foundation is doing? Yeah, yeah. Because I saw they did do- dog food, like a CBD, uh, you know, you know his dog, his signature dog, the Keith. Yeah. So there's, it's like a, a cookie that's in the shape of the dog that's for, for dogs. It's like a pet food. Uh, it was a charity, you know, raising money for an organization. Yeah, so that's interesting. And, and also, uh, in general, when the... Would you be surprised one day if Supreme, maybe not Supreme, but some brand did their cannabis, you know, because you see all the cannabis people wanting to go into fashion, right? So they all think that they can also, you know, move in that direction. So what about fashion moving into cannabis? Could, you know, opening ceremony have a cannabis line or has anybody done that yet? I only know of really like celebrities like Willie Nelson and I think I just saw, I think Drake is doing something. But I'm, I'm surprised that brands haven't, um, like, you know, Hedy Slimane, Celine, you know, yeah. because looking at the success of Bebo and Scott Campbell and what he did with, you know, not to say that the product's good or bad, it's just a different packaging and it went through the roof. So that kind of high-end fashion obsessed consumer gravitated towards the gold, pinkish gold Bebo pens and mints you know because it was like an accessory like a fashion accessory if you pull it out it's not like pulling out you know a split right it's like oh what's that chic thing that you've got in your hand it's very social people like pass it around because at the chateau you know and i had that doses thing like everyone's like oh give me that what do they have like a store there or what do they have at the chateau no but i heard i think now you can order bebo to your room and I know at Fred Siegel, they sell, I believe it's Bebo, and the way they get around not being a dispensary is it's quote-unquote messenger to you, but you go down to the garage and someone hands you the bag. So they have the packaging and everything upstairs, and you decide what you want, pay for it, and then they give it to you at the garage. Yeah, Sherbinsky's, you know Sherbinsky's? Yep. He's opening a spot in L.A. on Fairfax, you know, on the same block as Supreme and Diamond Supply and all that. So he's definitely feeling that other direction of moving, you know, his cannabis into fashion. And he had been involved with Bebo, I think, and was being sold at at Barney's. And, you know, so there's a lot of interest now in that high-end aspect of this business of catering to the, you know, people who can afford to get things that are a little bit more, 
refined, more expensive to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I just feel like it's a natural for fashion. I can't, you know, I'm waiting for that to happen. Why can't, you know, what's going to prevent, you know, Chanel or anybody from just doing their brand? Well, you, you know, you'd want to try it, right? Yeah, for sure. And I think, I mean, if James is Supreme ever did a brand, it would be a gazillion dollar business. People will buy anything these days that has the Supreme Barbara Kruger font logo on it. So if they put that on a bong and a pipe or pre-rolls, it would fly off the shelves. Right, because then they become in vulnerable to just the, you know, people just ripping them off and putting it on those items themselves, you know, and yeah, selling exactly. it in, uh, illegally so you can get your Supreme bong but they won't get paid, so we'll see what happens. But I, I'm, I'm sort of yeah. <laughs> expecting that that's going to be something that uh, we're going to see before too long. In your media, you know, world that you've been traveling in as well, you've moved around. I mean, those early days in paper were amazing, and your column was legendary. Mm-hmm. And but from there, you went on to work at a bunch of other places. At one point, you started your own magazine. I did. Hard. Not an easy. Uh, accomplishment, as you well know. Um, you know, what's changed now and L'Officiel, you know, I went, I was the editor-in-chief of Avenue. I started my own magazine with Observer Media called Scene. Did that for a couple of years. Then I was the publication director at the Daily Front Row. And now being at L'Officiel, what I've learned is that, you know, the days of traditional media are, are gone and dead. Now it's about more of a 360 approach and video, digital, social, and brand partnerships, as opposed to an ad page. Because we come out four times a year in print, and it has to feel like a coffee table book, you know, an evergreen luxury object in a way, the magazine that you want to keep around for four months, because people get other information, not just online, but on Instagram now, on Twitter. And so a magazine has to feel special really like a luxury object right well if you go to the magazine stores now it's like a different world of magazines and they're all like two inches thick and yep uh, full of you know it's and they're they're like books you know they're like you said it's like a quarterly or or an annual and yeah fill it up with as much as possible it's really amazing but the um i want to stop at scene for a minute because i know you know, part of the the ownership of the Observer yeah. at that Jared time. <laughs> oh, Jared Kushner. Who's that? I never heard yeah. of him. <laughs> and and um, if, so how was that? So you were working there. You knew him. And I'm, you know, and I'm, you know, at one point you even introduced me to him, if you remember. Yeah, Because I, I asked, yeah, for your help to see, like, some fundraising. See if... I remember in my early days, I said, well, we would take, you know, when we were looking for money for paper, I'd say, well, we would take money, you know, we would consider taking money from anyone except Donald Trump. But (laughs) at at that time, but but who knew that, uh, so, you know, and I somehow thought Kushner was different. I guess you did too. Yeah, he wasn't that hands-on in terms of editorial operations. I would get emails from him. I remember I put Greta Gerwig on the cover and he just wrote like, great cover. Who's that? And then like later when she kind of blew up, I like, you know, sent him an email. Like, this is who she is. Um, I met him through Ivanka because Ivanka liked what I did at Avenue, which was to do the opposite of what that magazine had done before me. I think I put, I was like inclusive before that was even a thing because I found that black girls photographed better than white 
directing at girls. And so it was like, I only shot, you know, Trina De Niro, Hannah Bronfman's first cover. And so she kind of liked what I did with that. And then I started the magazine with him. I was going to take over NYO, which was his monthly magazine for the observer. And then we kind of scratched that and just started fresh. When Trump was elected, I got hit up by everyone from the New York times, the wall street journal to like Ola weird foreign publications. And I never commented, not because I don't have a political opinion. I definitely do, but I really have nothing to say about Jared and Ivanka, certainly not anything juicy. And you know, they were, he was easy to work, work for and with. He really wasn't in the newsroom weekly. Right. Yeah. Seeing what's going on. Yeah. I thought too busy with his real estate world. Exactly. But that whole world of Ivanka was like a contemporary of yours in uh, when you were growing up and going around to those schools and stuff, right? Didn't she did she go yep. to school with like I've known her forever. With your sister? Did she was she like a classmate? Yep. They were um they're the same age yeah. around. Maybe Ivanka's a little bit older or she's between my brother and sister and they were all friends and I've known her, you know, pretty much I mean, since I was super young. Again, have always liked her. You know, we never worked on any projects together, certainly never discussed politics with her or Jared. So I really know them in a social way and get along with them and never would have predicted that you know, I remember one night at scene, I we did these philanthropy awards, and for The Observer, I was the editor of their philanthropy edition, and one night it was like Donald, Melania, Eric, Donald Jr., Ivanka, Jared, and, you know, we were all in the same room, and who would have known <laughs> then that like a year and a half yeah. later, everything would be different. To me then, it was just Donald Trump that you saw around New York a lot. Yeah, right. I know, yeah. You know, whether you like would go to parties. He would even go to nightclubs. Like a big opening, he was kind of there. Yeah, he wanted to get photographed, right? I mean, like a lot of other people that were there. Exactly. It was just like that's part of one of the things you do. If you're in New York and you're in the media world or, you know, you want to be covered by the media. Yep. I've heard it said that Ivanka wanted, you know, people who knew her felt that she wanted to be like a president or she thought she could be president one day, even back um, then. I mean, I've actually said that a lot now. I think that she's definitely gunning for something bigger and something in politics. And I think she has a shot. You know, she's trekking around the globe, sitting on conferences. I don't think she's doing it for her own, for fun. I think there's definitely rhyme and reason to it. And with the goal of running for office, probably president. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Something to look forward I, to, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. I used to think it would be Jared that would run, but now it's definitely Ivanka. Hmm. Jared doesn't really like to talk to the press or, you know, put himself out there. But Ivanka does. And she's very, you know, she looks like a, a political figure. Yeah, she could definitely fit in or at least, you know, take one of those TV pundit roles. And, you know, it seems like that's yep. like a way to become president now is to have a TV show or to be like an anchor. You sort of have to have this big platform that people already know you from when you come out the gate. So it's not just like a politician from somewhere yep, who completely. decides they want to be president. If you have that platform, I'm waiting for some TV newscaster anchor type to come forward and do something like that. That would, 
I wouldn't be surprised. Well, who, you know, it doesn't really matter from my perspective because I don't feel like you have to be like an expert in government to be president. You don't have to be a lawyer. You can come from any walk of life. You have to be a good, you know, for me, you have to be a good person and care and be interested and pay attention and have mm -hmm. smart people around. But that seems uh, easier said than done. Exactly. In so many ways, uh, you know, cannabis is trying to be fashion because we're finding, you know, there's so many, uh -huh. like you're, the company you're working with, Guide, and so many others, they really want to create the brand that can that everyone knows, like a mainstream brand. There is really none right now that's outside the cannabis category that I can mm -hmm. feel. If you had a brand, whatever, how what would you approach it? How would you want to market it? Do you think most efficiently? I think that you know what made Bebo successful. Um, they you know they lucked out. They got a profile in the New York Times. Alex Williams wrote the story and he called it the Hermes of cannabis and that kind of lucky for them stuck. And I definitely think there's a niche yeah. between kind of like stoner culture and a high end version. And I think that's what Bebo, you know, in a kind of organic way hit that market. And I think that fashion is a little bit slow. Fashion's more conservative than people think in terms of taking risks a lot of the time, especially mainstream fashion. You know, not indie designers, but, you know, they're very worried about image. But I think as it becomes more and more popular and acceptable, which it is already, they'll jump on it. And legal yeah. nationally, I think, legal nationally will huge probably difference. make a huge difference. And I, you know, that's bound to happen sooner than we think, I think. If you start, you know, as a brand and wanted to market to the fashion crowd, what do you think would be an effective way of doing that? Like just taking a lot of Instagram, because Instagram, you're not allowed to advertise cannabis, even though there's a lot of cannabis, hashtag yeah. cannabis info out there. But, you, you know, there's so many limitations of how to tell the story. Yeah, I think, you know, Instagram, I think that, you know, with fashion, it's all about image. So getting the right campaign and models and photographers and having it look a certain way. The only one I can think of now, I mean, Dosis is a kind of copied Apple. They're like white vape pens that are kind of round. What's oriented for women, right? I think it's for everyone. Is it really? But, it, you know, it looks like an Apple. It almost looks like it could, you could plug it into your laptop. But I think that you really have to focus on the look of the thing. So the whole presentation of photography, just applying the same standards that they do for their products today, their clothing, on onto the cannabis world. Do you think people have to be shown smoking something or that the product has to be in it? Or is there can it be more subtle than that? I think it can be subtle, but I think it would help if people saw it. I know you can't show people drinking alcohol on TV, for instance. So I'm sure there are like weird rules, but... You know, there's something sexy about smoking pot, and I think that that would help to to show that and to see the product for sure. It's like it should be feel like a status symbol, the way a Birkin bag or even a Supreme hoodie is like, you know, has a status symbol vibe to it. The the vape pen or the pre roll should feel the same way. So it's about design of the packaging and something you would leave out on your table at home. Got it. You wouldn't have to put in a drawer. Okay, everybody out there, if you're listening, Peter Davis available, <laughs> consulting, available, exactly, consulting work, cannabis marketing. Right? Uh, so yeah, so you were telling me a little bit earlier about why you're out in LA. It sounded amazing. Yeah, so um, I'm out here. We're doing a special 
uh, edition of L'Officiel. We did one called L'Officiel Islands, and this one's called L'Officiel Peak, and it's a mountain issue focused on Aspen, Cortina, Courchevel, Stad, and Saint Moritz. And I met Sean White years ago and became pals with him, and he's our guest editor and our cover star. So we're shooting him. He's training for the Olympics now and skateboarding the first time in Tokyo this summer in Japan, but they've had skateboarding as an Olympic sport and I think he'll probably win. And so we're going to build a fake mountain peak in Milk Studios and I'm going to have him skateboarding over it and kind of fake snowboarding on it. And we're going to capture a lot of video of him actually skateboarding and doing stuff. And also he loves fashion. He went to the Met Ball. I had lunch with him the day after the Met Ball and you know he likes to get dressed up as a lot of athletes do now and so we're gonna you know have him in high fashion but on a skateboard kind of high and low I like the idea of him in vans and like black tie sounds cool sounds something like Peter Davis might wear yeah exactly (laughs) and he's a nice guy so uh it'll be a, a good shoot not high maintenance like actors okay well thank you Peter Davis yeah for Thank sitting you. and talking with me, filling me in on some of the history, your history, New York history, and I love uh, all the stuff that you got going on right now. Yeah, me too. Thank you for thank you for calling me, talking to me. Thank you. You've been listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Please follow us on Instagram at shopburb. And subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash light culture, as well as iTunes and all the regular distribution platforms. <laughs> <laughs>